This is NBR's Live from the Hive, a compilation of the week's top stories straight out of the beehive. Do you have something to add? Head over to nbr.co.nz and join the discussion. Well, it may be recess here at Parliament, bereft of the politicians. Well, a lot of them anyway. But the actual politics of politics continues. I'm Grant Walker, and along with NBR's political editor, Brent Edwards, we always put our gummies on as we wade through the political effluent, if you know what I mean, and I think you do. As was the theme, really, this week, as party leaders put on their wellies and headed to field days as they tried to shore up that rural vote. Well, let's start with the Nats. Brent, two things. Changes to GM, first of all. Basically allowing things like a GM cow fart or belch-reducing ryegrass to actually be put in the paddock instead of in the Petri dish. And a lot of uh, scientists and farmers are pretty happy about that. Yeah, well, I mean, it's been a, an issue of debate for a long time since, particularly from the science and research community, that the restrictions on um, genetic engineering research and that are too restrictive and, and prevent New Zealand from getting ahead and obviously farmers would like to see some help around reducing emissions. But on the other side, you know, there's also a concern from a lot within business actually that, you know, one of the things that New Zealand plays on in terms of exporting is that we're GE free. So there are questions around what would that do to the country's trade profile. So well, in theory, it probably shouldn't do much, bearing in mind, as Luxon said, we're behind most of the world when it comes to this GE stuff. Well, yeah, yeah, I know, but it, it'll be an interesting thing around the marketing because, you know, the marketing for the New Zealand... Well, New we'll, Zealand, be, we'll be GE-free except for that bit. Well, <laughs> once you do it, you can't really say you're GE-free on anything. Well, how, about, how, about just, how about 98%? Yeah. And so, you know, pure. but that old idea that, you know, 100% pure, GE-free environmentally sustainable, all that sort of stuff. It's part of the... Yeah, but all that marketing eventually changes. Look at absolutely positively Wellington we used to have. Well, the marketing changes, but the reality doesn't. And for instance, if you look at sustainability and climate change issues, which have come up at field days as well, I mean, markets overseas um, and the big you know, food importers and supermarket chains like Tesla. Um, yeah, they want to know where it comes from and it's carbon so, yeah, footprint yeah, and yeah, blah, so, blah. So it's a lot more pressure on um, exporters to get that right. Yeah. Uh, the Nats also want to push out the timeline, <laughs> and we knew this was coming, didn't we, for farmers to join the ETS, in fact, out to, uh, what, 2030? Well, That's vote-grabbing. It's not about joining the ETS, it's pushing out the timeline right. for them actually having their own system in place for pricing. They've, they've walked away from Hawaka Economics, yep. and they're saying they're going to talk to farmers about trying to put in some place. They won't, they won't use the ETS as a backstop, which is the government's policy, so if by 2025 they haven't reached some sort of then agreement, they're then they're in the ETS. Yep. National won't do that. ACT obviously has been opposed to it from the very beginning, so um, it's sort of kind of shouting from the rooftops, well, that National's finally joining it. Make, you know, So <laughs> that, that, that push for votes about you know the party that's... Because um, ACT has also released its um, primary sector policy, agricultural policy at field days. Which is basically and, what? Well, it's basically a, a really a repeat of what they've already said, and that is that you know they won't impose any prices on farmers on emissions, they'll free them up over regulations on water, they'll bring back live exports of animals, all those sorts of things. So essentially saying they're going to remove the regulatory um, burdens on farmers that, you know, that they've moaned about for so long. 
And the interesting thing at the same time, Chris Hipkins and um, the agriculture minister, Damien O'Connor, yeah. making a big thing about... No fertiliser tax. Yeah, and but also a big thing about the trade access that they've gained in terms of the free trade... Well, you can't deals. argue with that. No, you can't. That they've negotiated or had upgraded... Um, and that's fed into, they say, because then they announced there the latest outlook showing that, what, $56 billion worth of exports from the primary sector to the year to the end of June, another record high. Um, so still doing very well. Yeah, but at the end of the day, if you're a farmer right now, I want you to imagine you're a farmer. I know it's really hard. You probably haven't been on a farm in, in your entire life. However, Actually, I have. Have you? Many, many, many <laughs> times. OK, good then. You're in a position to imagine yourself as a farmer. Who would you vote for? Well, I mean, look, I think most farmers, when you look at their political leanings, are going to obviously be try be choosing between ACT and National. An interesting thing around that political, I guess, contest, if you like, is just how hard ACT is going after the farming vote. Right, so uh, Chris Luxon also this week was overheard as saying, we are, he said, a very negative wet, whiny and inward-looking country. He kind of mumbled it because he didn't know no one was recording it. Uh, and at field days, uh, the Prime Minister <laughs> said he hadn't met any people like that, followed up by, I thought it was hilariously funny, but I haven't run into Christopher Luxon yet. <laughs> yeah, well, I suppose that's one of Chris Hipkins' strengths of those one-liners that he can come out with. Um, but, I mean, later, uh, Christopher Luxon obviously... Um, clarified and said he was speaking about the government rather than about the country. But, I mean, obviously we have been very wet. Well, the North Island's been very wet, so that's And you've been pretty whiny. I've been pretty whiny. And I have a few ones. (laughs) So, yeah. Um, You know, I know there's been some commentary again about, oh, uh, Christopher Luxon should come back to Wellington and learn about how to be political. But I I sort of wonder, though, whether actually people don't appreciate that sort of comment. I think they liked it. And whether he should really back off it, because... Clearly, since COVID, you know, people are a bit grumpier and more disgruntled at the moment. Yeah. Uh, and with the economy, you know, struggling, you know, that... Well, that we're now in recession, Brent. In recession, that's right. Technical recession, a, what, 0.1% um, drop in the three it months... It doesn't matter. It's recession. Well, I know it's recession, but if we'd got a 0.1% increase... It, we wouldn't be in recession, but really we would be hardly in a better, better off. But it, well, here's a couple of bright spots on this graph. Oh. <laughs> so if we're, we're in recession, so surely for the Reserve Bank, which has already signalled very strongly that it doesn't Although intend, it didn't think we would be in recession. It didn't, but it's already signalled that it didn't intend increasing <clears throat> interest rates. Given we're in recession and it didn't think we would be in recession, that surely must be absolutely cementing in its view that it's done no, enough. No, not necessarily, because I'm going to mention but, something a little bit later but, on that just shows you about inflation, how it's still going. So well, I, I know, but yeah. inflation... And you've got the fuel tax coming on it, in a couple and, of weeks. And it was interesting because um, Nicola Willis, National's finance spokesperson, put out a statement saying, oh, well, you know, it showed government's mismanagement. Okay, you can argue about that. but And that we were worse off compared with countries like Australia, for instance. Well, on an annual basis, despite being in recession... The GDP grew 2.9%. In Australia, it grew less, 2.3%. On an annual basis, inflation was 6.7% here. In Australia, it's 7%. Yeah, but it won't matter because, you see, all of our business is going to be in Australia soon. Well, yeah, that could be... Would you like me to explain why? I'm going to right now. Okay, you explain why. In Greenland, yes, the Greens tax policy has been announced. Weekly income guarantee, all paid for by a wealth tax. An increase in corporate tax to one of the highest in the world. Well... In fact, the only thing that I can say, Brent, is that sentiment probably, in terms of timing, couldn't be better. That's tax, about it. Tax-free threshold of ten thousand dollars. Oh, that, yeah. That should help a guy like you. I yeah. Know how much you get paid. Blah. <laughs> yeah. Look, 
reality is, though, how much of that, if the Greens form part of a Labour-led government, how much of that would be put into effect? Not much. So, I mean, that, that's their policy, and that they're arguing around fairness and that the need for... Well, how fair is it if all the businesses leave and go to, go to Oz because their tax rates are cheaper? Well, that's the argument, isn't it? So, I mean, one of the... And, that would, I, and I would imagine that would be an argument within a government where I wouldn't think Labour... But interestingly, we've had the IMF yes, here this have. week... And they're great, and I've said this before, but they're great advocates of a comprehensive capital gains tax and land, land tax. tax. Not wealth tax, though, I have to say. They but will, they want lower personal but, and corporate tax yeah, rates. Yeah, that's right. They're not talking about increasing the tax. No, they're about lowering it. They're not incre- talking about increasing the tax base. They're talking about broadening it. So getting more money out of those other we, taxes to be able to give people yeah, well, and we've, businesses we've tax before, cuts. Like Michael Cullen, tax working groups. I know. Name we've two. heard it all before. We have a group like the IMF saying it, which... People will but they've always up, been saying People it. will pick up on bits of it and say, oh, this is great, but we can never get away from a per- partisan political argument on tax where any effort to talk about maybe we should do this gets hit with, with the arguments either it's unfair or it's, or it's tax, 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 whereas in fact, as the Cullen's tax working group suggested, it would be a, basically a tax switch. Um, as, uh, well, I found it interesting, first of all, that the Prime Minister said he's going to be announcing very soon what, in fact, he will and won't rule out as far as coalition tax deals is concerned. That's interesting in itself, isn't it? The fact he's going to do that? It is, but I would imagine that it won't be absolutely specific. I mean, he's got to leave some wriggle room. Well, then why say that at all? Well, I mean, I guess... He said so people know exactly what they're going to get. Yeah. Well, then he has to do exactly that. Well, I think he'll probably be able to rule out something like a wealth tax, for instance, you know, say that, you know, that Labor wouldn't introduce a wealth tax. I've got a funny feeling that they're about to announce something big tax-wise. Don't know why it's in my bones. Yeah, they're going to announce something. I don't know how big it will be, um, but... Obviously, we're, we're waiting to see what Labor's policy will be that they take into the election. IMF also said the government needs to rein in its spending. Anyone going to take any notice? Yeah, well, that, that was another one. I mean, it, it wasn't so much rein in spending. It was saying, look, you've got the spending track now over the next four years. Do not increase it. All right. And, 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 but, but also, there was a sort of suggestion that maybe in this first year, if you could pull back, and, it, and when it, it said, yeah, spend that money on the recovery from cyclone, the cyclones yeah, yeah. and floodings. Then stop. But, but the sort of stuff that you've been doing, like, for instance, the fuel tax rebate and everything, get, get that back in from July. Yep. Don't. No. And start, ta- if you're going to have to help vulnerable families, target your help. Finally, yeah. and briefly, how significant is the PM's China trip? Oh, that's really significant. I mean, you know, China's our biggest export market, um, and obviously there are also geopolitical tensions with China. Yes. So, you know, for um, Chris Hipkins to go there, the first visit by a New Zealand Prime Minister since 2019, yeah, very important. All right, finally, that's B.I. Bandra. In a week, inflation kept up. It's almost unstoppable uh, pace. And here's where you really notice it, Brent. Uh, you, you mentioned field days. So I went to my supermarket this week. I thought, oh, I feel like a lamb rack. And I haven't had one for a year because the last you, time you I looked, look, they were, You don't no, look like a lamb rack. Thanks. Uh, they, at $12, I'd buy them. And then they went to 19 I thought, oh, I'm not really going to buy one. And then they went to 23 I said, I'm never going to buy one. So I thought I'd go this week and have a look. $55 for a lamb rack. I know, but this... $55 for a lamb rack. This week, we bought a couple of lamb steaks for $6.50. No, 50. no. 50, yeah, talk sh- about what I want. $55 but, but, but for look, a lamb rack. look around and choose, the, you know... Who's going to buy it? No one's going to buy it, as far as I can see. But, you know, I will buy the, the two lamb steaks for $6.50. Oh, I'll be joining you in your shopping trip anyway. As usual, we appreciate you 
giving us your precious time and don't waste it going by $55 land racks, I would think. We do appreciate it, and we'll see you next time. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. A new report out today warns New Zealand's social cohesiveness is under strain. I'm joined by Sir Peter Gluckman, the director of Koetu, the Centre for Informed Futures. So how much under strain is the country's social cohesiveness? I think there's a number of factors that mean that we've got lots of worries which affect different parts of society in different ways, undermine trust between people and undermine trust between the institutions of government and the citizens of the country. So I think that we've got to be realistic and see that like other democracies, while we may have seen ourselves as very cohesive, it's under it's at risk. We saw that last year around the parliamentary protests. Uh, we see it in the inability to have uh, constructive debate and the trivialization of some rather important issues. And so I think that we need to not be pessimistic, but we should be very alert to the fact that this country needs to look at itself and start thinking in a different way about itself. You, you talk about the trivialisation of issues, and, and I guess particularly in, in the context of politics. Is it worse than, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago? It's different, and I think part of that difference is because society has, has, has evolved. I mean, we have less social boundaries than we had a generation or two generations ago. Uh, we have, of course, the impact of the internet. We have the degrading of the traditional fourth estate and holding in long-form journalism. There's a lot of phenomena that have led to the situation we're now in, growing inequality, economic inequality, more concerns about social degradation, environmental degradation, uh, not clear about what our economic future is, geostrategic tensions in the world. It's just a different place. And so in that place, uh, people's fears grow, people become more anxious, and that can lead in the context of all these other factors at in particular, the digital milieu we live in, uh, to growing um, fractionation of society. We're seeing that conversations are now largely matters, even political conversations, of identity and ad hominem attack and epithets rather than policy discourses at a deep level. So even in the last week where there have been lots of policies put out by different political parties, they're trivialised and that they're a three-minute soundbite on television or on or, on, or, or a, a few tweets, tweets, and then the world moves on rather than a careful dissection of the policy choices ahead for New Zealanders. But, I mean, in an election year, which I suppose only a few months ago, the election, you know, how likely is it that we'll get this Sort of deep. Oh, we won't get it right now. But but I mean, I think, I mean, I think what our report is about is 
putting up a red flag and saying danger ahead. If we don't actually look at our democratic institutions, if we don't actually understand that democracy itself needs to evolve, if we don't understand that if we don't have better ways of consulting between governments and their citizens, and that's both local and central government and their citizens, if we don't move beyond the short-termism and start to deal with some of these wicked, complex issues over the long term and don't pretend that there's a magic bullet solution to any of them, which is the tendency in a short-term political cycle, we are actually going to compromise our future as a society. And I think that you know, I'm actually a believer that democracy is a very precious jewel that New Zealand has had. And I think that democracy requires that people trust their government and government trusts their citizens. And it requires that even though you and I may not disagree, may not agree on many things, we can actually agree on the rules on how decisions are made. And all of that is put at risk in this very changed sociological and technological milieu and in the face of big challenges like climate change, which will lead to big economic shifts, has to lead to big economic shifts, um, a much more complicated demographic profile than we had a dec uh, two de decades ago. All of this is is real and it's not going to be solved by just epithets thrown between one political party and another or one, one advocate and another. I mean, in the report, it talks about a shallow democracy and, and the sort of partisan nature, I guess, of the debate. I mean, MMP was, I think, you know, the intention, the thought people had was it would make the political debate based around building consensus. That hasn't happened? I don't think so. And, I mean, if you look around the world, what's happened with proportional representation where there are multiple parties has been, whereas perhaps 20 years ago, it led to centrist coalitions. It's now leading more to divided and, and more extreme relationships. Simply, I think the power of the internet, uh, power of information, disinformation, to actually polarize people more. So we've seen, for instance, this phenomenon of effective polarization, which is described most for the US, but is seen in other democracies as well. Whereas in the past, Democrats and Republicans would be identified by having very different policy positions. They're now described by hating the other side. thing that unifies Democrats is they hate Republicans. thing that unifies Republicans, they hate Democrats. In fact, their policies are not that different when you actually boil it down. And so that I think there are tensions and phenomena outside the institutions of democracy that pull it apart. And that actually says something else. D democracy is a young ex social experiment. It needs to evolve. And we need to think about the new tools of democracy that are emerging. When I talk about shallow democracy, I'm not talking about it being shallow and that it's um, uh, not trying to be democratic. What I'm saying is it doesn't have layers of democracy to ensure that there's trust between the public 
and 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 the institutions of government. So we're seeing yesterday a BBC report showing that there's been a, a de massive decline in the trust of another institution of government, the police. Now, do we have the same phenomenon here? I suspect it has been declining. I don't know, but I suspect it has. And so we, we know that more than 50% of New Zealanders have distrust of government as their initial starting point. That's pretty worrisome. I'm sure that wouldn't have been the case when you and I were both young. Uh, uh, it's changed. And therefore, we've got to think about what do we do to evolve democracy, whether it's deepening it in, in by structurally, whether it's about getting away from the cynical uh, form of consultation that governments have with their citizens to a more effective form of consultation, which is easily possible and is done in countries like Finland extensively, uh, we need to actually say, well, it's not just about the voting mechanism, it's actually about the whole structure of our democratic structures to maintain a cohesive large-scale society where all the citizens feel their voices are heard, even if the decisions are made are ones that they don't particularly like themselves. I mean, I think you seem to suggest that maybe we do need a, a second house, an upper house too in Parliament to provide I think that, that I think that's one way of deepening a democracy. I think and, we're, and particularly as we're going through a phase now where we appear to be centralising rather than devolving decision-making, that's a concern. I would argue that devolved decision-making to more empowerment to local bodies, which means dealing with their funding situations, thinking about citizens' juries, more sophisticated forms of, of, of electronic consultation as used in Europe, and we've been piloting here at COI too, are the kinds of ways you can deepen democracy in other ways which might be uh, easier and uh, to actually achieve in the New Zealand environment, which is particularly sceptical at the moment of the political class. Do you have a, a single piece of advice or a plea maybe to the politicians in the, the next few months leading up to the election? Yeah, debate, and please do debate the policy issues. Don't just throw epithets at each other. Don't just look for the one line on television or radio or social media, but let's see some proper policy debates which respect that every politician, irrespective of their, of their party, is not there just as an ego trip, but is actually believing in something and wanting to achieve something for the country. Now, if we could move back to or move to actually having quality debates and honest debates instead of, for example, avoiding even defining the words that are meant, then I think that in a debate, then, then we might get somewhere. I mean, we saw sadly in the Three Waters debate last year, and which is probably not over yet, an avoidance of actually being clear about what the agenda was, why they were doing it, explaining to the, the citizens who are not dumb what it is and why it's being done. And so instead we got into, there were mixed agendas there and they were not made clear. Sir Peter Gluckman, thank you for your time. 
revelations of pro-Russian propaganda being inserted into wire stories on Radio New Zealand's website has amplified concerns about the state of journalism. I'm joined by NBR's political editor, Brent Edwards. Uh, Brent, it was just one journalist responsible for this pro-Russian propaganda, but does it point to a wider problem, do you think? Well, it certainly points to a wider problem at RNZ in the sense that you know, it should have been picked up much earlier and it should have been picked up by RNZ's own processes, not by someone outside the organisation raising concerns about the story. Uh, but more broadly, I think it does raise um, concerns for the wider media because, I mean, honestly, I think a number of the other websites, large news websites, but for the grace of God, it could happen to them. Because none of them really put in place really good, strong monitoring processes, you know that we perhaps used to have in the past in the in the old days of newspapers in the 60s, 70s, 80s. You know, sub editors subbing stories, readers looking over them. You know, there were a whole series of checks and balances to to pick up largely mistakes, but also that would have picked up odd changes to stories of the nature that occurred at RNZ. That said, I mean the reason why a company like RNZ or any other company get wire copy in is because they don't change it at all. They just whack it up onto their website or into their print. So something really ha- fundamental has happened here that's a problem, isn't it? Yeah, well, it has. I mean, clearly there are examples where stories have been changed, um, you know, you know, one or two paragraphs, but enough to change the meaning of a story and to put in if, if the stories regarding the um, Russian invasion of Ukraine, to put in a more... Russian-friendly perspective um, on it. So that's clearly wrong. I mean, and it has been, if you're taking wire stories, in this case, these were Reuters stories, I think, in the large, in the main, you put them up as they are. You might sub them for, for, for length, so they might be cut in length, depending on all of that, but you don't change the words in that way. So, yeah, I mean, that was significant. I understand this was a, a journalist sub-editor working remotely, so not under, you know, not actually in the office under someone's eye, but again, pointing to who was reviewing his work. I mean, you, you can't expect someone to be over, over a reporter's shoulder or over a sub-editor's shoulder 24 hours a day, but over a period of time, someone ought to be checking occasionally to see what's going on. That clearly didn't happen, and so that does point to a problem with RNZ's editorial control and, and the way they, they manage their web. And of course, you I mean, worked at RNZ for many years as political editor and, and other roles. Are there other specific problems about RNZ that people should know about, do you think? Well, I mean, I think the the, the main problem in, in terms of what we're speaking about was for a couple of years, I was the director of news gathering. Um, and in that role, I essentially had a large responsibility for um, RNZ's news coverage. But... I technically had no responsibility whatsoever for what what went on the web. That's a completely separate, digital is separate from news. And it was always the point of mine, I thought, that, that news should have run digital, that it should have been one single sort of organisation. And so, I, I mean, I think that partly plays into it. And I would imagine from this panel that's set up, maybe one of the recommendations they might make would be that digital should be integrated as part of the, the news division and therefore a lot more editorial editorial control then imposed on what goes on the web. I mean, 
as you say, but for the grace of God go other outlets. I mean, I worked at TVNZ and there was a rush to digital as well and this, you know, lots of resources going in but little oversight from the main newsroom. Um, do you think this really needs an overhaul across the board in media? Yeah, I do. I mean, you know, I mean, I think there is a crisis in journalism and there has been for some time, um, largely pushed by the the surge of social media and I mean and obviously the commercial model for a lot of media companies has has collapsed and that's driven it because we you know we know newsrooms now staffing levels are much lower than they used to be yet more is expected of journalists in terms of what they have to do so there's all those pressures um, but you know we do need to look at I mean and one hopefully one thing that might come out of the RNZ reviewer it might not just lead to improvements at RNZ but might be a lesson for other media organisations too to look at about how they, um, you know, basically improve and strengthen the way they conduct journalism. And, you know, over the years we've seen a lot of clickbait stuff um, in mainstream media because they thought that was the way to deal with social media. I think that's helped just undermine the trust in news media and in journalism and that's a growing thing. And we you know, had that report out, report out this week from Koi Tu, you know, talking about the um, erosion of social cohesion and and the the erosion of trust in a lot of our, our institutions, including in the media, and, and that does remain a big problem. You know, journalism is important is important, and it's particularly important to a democracy. And if journalism is not trusted, I'm like, okay, we've never been. You know, you and I know journalists have never been that popular, <laughs> but you know, we look at it that trust those levels of trust are, are dropping to alarming levels. And, you know, I think as a craft, we've got to do something about trying to arrest that drop. But specifically, a public broadcaster needs that high level of trust, doesn't it, to continue to have the social licence to operate? Well, absolutely. I mean, I guess some people might say, gee, if a public broadcaster can do this, well, anyone kind of can. And, and obviously, taxpayers fund the public broadcaster, so, you know, it has an even greater, if you like, responsibility probably to um, you know, deliver the sorts of trusted journalism that that they demand. Um, so yeah, but these are it's, it is a big issue. While it relates to just one journalist, I think a journalist, I think it does reverberate much more widely across the whole uh, media um, ecosystem. Brent, thanks very much. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. MBR columnist Bridget Morton is worried about the fragility of the country's constitutional framework and she joins me now. Why so worried? I think that does sound very serious. But I think there's just been a series of incidents over the last couple of weeks, and in particular last week, that just highlighted that a lot of our system is built on convention and we need people to adhere and have respect for that convention unless otherwise our framework does kind of fall apart. We don't have a written constitution. This is what we rely on. And, and it's also a matter of trust, isn't it? And there's, I guess, a sense that public trust in our institutions is falling, and that's been part of a report put out by Koitu, and uh, Sir Peter Gluckman's clearly worried about that. Yeah, absolutely, and I think these three incidents actually demonstrate exactly what Gluckman's talking about. So, you know, we had Jan Tanetti misleading the House um, and then appearing before Plivages Committee. We had the issue with RNZ and what's appeared to be a digital editor who's been subbing um, articles to a particular pro-Russian stance for almost five years now. And then we've got officials undermining MP 
MPs at Select Committee by asking for changes that they haven't asked for or undermining some of the changes they have asked for. All really serious institutions and things we need to respect and showing that there's some people that don't have respect for them. I guess one of the bright spots out of that Select Committee thing is at least the Select Committee as a whole, including both government and opposition MPs, seem to come together and basically, you know, point the finger at the officials and say it's not good enough. Yeah, absolutely. And that Three Waters report, you absolutely have seen that. What I think we're still waiting on is to see actually what that means in terms of those officials. There's been some pretty sort of terse comments made by the minister responsible for those officials. Um, obviously, terse comments in the Select Committee report. But ultimately, I think for that to actually have ramifications is there needs to be a bit more serious disciplinary process because what they did was a very serious breach of what should occur in regards to a Select Committee. Have you have you been aware of officials acting in that way before? Is that never? I've never seen officials. I've seen many a time when I wasn't, you know, in the Beehive myself, of officials getting frustrated by MPs. You know, they feel like they don't understand them, or they're not asking the right questions, or understanding the implications of what they're asking for. But then that information is fed back as appropriate back to the MPs who are asking the questions. The MPs then direct PCO through the clerk of the committee and things. Never the officials trying to circumvent that process and undermine the MPs themselves. I mean, on you raised the matter of the RNZ um, editor um, or, or um, online sub-editor, but. It's not really a constitutional matter, is it? I mean, that, that's that's a matter of trust in our institutions and in complete particularly in the news media. Yeah, absolutely. They are a state-funded broadcaster, which I think does raise the stakes for them a little bit higher than other media. I think also the fact that we do rely on the media to be the fourth estate, that's how they claim a whole lot of privileges in terms of access and accountability, and that means that also then they need to be held to their higher standard, particularly, as Gluckman points out, that we've got an increased environment of disinformation and misinformation. So I think without a doubt that whilst you may not see it necessarily as part of our constitution in the way that you see Parliament, media plays a really important role in our society and in our constitutional framework. Therefore, I think we should be holding them and be concerned by this type of behaviour as much as we should things that are happening within the building. So what do we need to do then to, to strengthen, if you like, our constitutional conventions or and certainly to improve the public trust in our institutions? Well, I think one of the big things is obviously when I look at the Jantanetti exercise, the fact that she knew that she had misled the House and did not go and correct it. And whilst I think she was told, it seems, from her staff that she needed to, um, that she was wrong, there was nobody that followed that up and made sure that happens. That indicates to me that there is a culture problem in terms of the beehive currently as it is about respect for those rules. Remember, this comes on the back of Stuart Nash and his linking of Cabinet, you know, to donors. I think we need to be really careful here that it actually needs to be set at a leadership point of view right at the top about the standard. Therefore, I think, you know, um, for Hipkins, he probably has to crack down pretty hard on this type of behaviour. Bridget Morton, thank you for your time. Thanks. A report from the New Zealand Initiative takes a look at the past to see what we can learn from history to build better infrastructure. I'm joined by its author, Matthew Birchall. So, I mean, you've looked... Or back to Julius Vogel and you know, mm -hmm. the great national um, push to build railways. And and you seem to have come up with, I think, three basic conclusions. That's right. We need... Private pri enterprise, 
localism and a culture that fosters growth and development. So I've tried to take the, the full sweep of New Zealand history from Vogel to broadband and distill, you know, what are the things that we really need to get right to get ourselves out of this, this infrastructure mess? Now, while Vogel built quite a lot of railway, but you're still not saying that was a great success. Yeah, he had a mixed legacy. So on the positive side of the ledger, he got things done. He built a lot of rail, a lot of roads. So he was very effective, and I think we can learn from that. And and why he was effective, well, there are two reasons. Limited regulation. You know, he didn't have to deal with the RMA or whatever. He could just get things things done. And immigration. Um, he didn't uh, have to worry about not having enough workers to uh, to build the rail lines. Because he brought them in. Exactly. So that was part of the package. It was, it was centrally funded, and that we can get to, you know, part of the problems there. But centrally funded and bringing immigrants in. Think big, another failure. Think big, yeah. So I like to think that uh, Vogel was uh, thinking big before Robert Muldoon was born. Um, you know, some, uh, again, some uh, mixed blessings, but, uh, you know, government stepped in in a massive way uh, when it didn't really have to. And if we think of, say, Lake Onslow today, I, I think potentially another think big. But I'm just wondering, aren't there occasions, though, where some of these big infrastructure projects, they're not going to happen without government, like significant government involvement, are they? That, that's right, but it's about the balance between central government and local authorities. And what I'm trying to say is, look, when we've gotten things right, local authorities have been empowered to build the things that they need. They know what they need in their communities. When central government takes a big bet, it often hasn't worked. And we've got into this habit where we rely on central government. It's top down as opposed to, to bottom up. So yes, of course, you know, with our national road network, we're always going to uh, rely on, on Wellington to some extent. But we need to think about a better way of striking that balance between local authorities who should be prioritised and central government. And so the, the Auckland Harbour Bridge, though, is one that you would say was an example of where localism worked well. I think the Auckland Harbour Bridge is a great example. Uh, it wasn't dictated by central government. It was led by a special, a special purpose vehicle, uh, what we would call a special purpose vehicle, and it was designed to suit the local community. Um, and the way it was funded and financed was through revenue bonds. So the bonds were linked to tolls. So people paid. The people who used the bridge were the ones that funded and financed it. What do you think then about the way sort of infrastructure in Auckland is being developed? I mean, I think of the city rail link um, and, and other proposals for further infrastructure for instance, say, a, a second harbour crossing, whether it's a tunnel or another mm. bridge, but where there seems to be the government and Auckland Council working in tandem. Is, is, is that getting to it, or is that still involving too much central control? Too much central control. I think, you know, let's take the projects in turn. Um, I think the problem with the second harbour crossing is it's one thing to announce that you're going to build a bridge, but how are you going to pay for it? Um, you know, we've had feasibility studies in the past and, and it didn't stack up and I've not seen anything, you know, that's come out recently that suggests otherwise. So I think, yeah, we want central government working closely with local authorities. Um, but, yeah, those examples I don't think are, are perfect by any means. And you think that 
tolls should be used a lot more than they have. I mean, the toll was, I mean, in terms of financing, it was a, a great example. For the yeah, so a great example from the Taranaki in the late 19th century right through to the 1920s. Again, a great example of localism in action. Uh, the people of Taranaki, you know, quite rightly wanted to improve their roads and, and the way that they figured out that they could do that was put a toll in. Um, now, we only have three toll roads uh, now. We used to have them dotted across the country. And I would go further than just say toll roads. I would say, I think, uh, user pays principles. Um, you know, everyone knows that our, our roads are full of potholes and, and they're not really up to muster. Um, but we don't sometimes ask the second, you know, secondary follow-up questions, which is, well, how are we going to pay to get those better roads? And if you're quite a, I think, um, supporter of public-private partnerships, and I mm -hmm. think you comment in the report on the rollout of ultra-fast broadband. Yeah. I guess some people would say, though, well, well what about Transmission Gully? Sure. Uh, so the, the point there is that the model can work, but it's how it's executed yeah. and managed, right? And so, yeah, of course, Transmission Gully is, is, has been a bit of a mess, but when you sort of dig into it, there have been all sorts of problems with how Waka Kotahi has, has negotiated its contract. So the sort of risk allocation issues there are, are quite pronounced. So, you know, the PP model is not uh, one size fits all, it's how you apply it, but I think we can learn um, from the ultra-fast broadband example of how PPP was done well. I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of it's around um, regulation and, and in the past a lot of these projects have been able to go through quite quickly because there's been less regulatory impediments. Do you see the proposed changes to the Resource Management Act, <laughs> those sorts of things, is that going to improve it? I think it's actually going to make it worse. Um, you know, I don't think many people sort of pine after the RMA, right? But uh, everything that I've read, it's going to create extra hurdles. And this sort of speaks to the, the third point in my report, and I actually think it's the most important. It's about a whole cultural attitude we used to see the upsides in growth. Nowadays, we're negative. Uh, you know, there are problems everywhere. And what we have seen with the RMA and what we're seeing with the new legislation is it's just making it harder to build the things that we'll need. I mean, <laughs> the government has declared a climate emergency, but we can't consent wind farms fast enough to meet our net zero targets. So we've gone astray. Matthew Birchall, thank you for your time. Thank you. And that's been this week's Live from the Hive. Thanks for listening.